Uh, today we come to uh, the close of our little five-week survey of Leviticus, which is honestly really just uh, a longer journey that we began Super Bowl Sunday when we embarked on a study of Exodus. The teaching team, trust me on this, always understood that it might be a little bit of a challenge to hold your attention all the way through uh, these two books as they are odd to our ears and eyes, and as such, they are largely ignored by us in our personal study. But if you have hung here with us, it's probably because you have been able to not only grasp a key truth that these two books portray for us, but also have learned to rejoice in it. Here's the truth. A wildly holy God fundamentally dangerous to sinners like you and me, has made it possible for us to not only know about Him, but to know Him intimately. The more I think about our journey and that truth, the more convinced I become that the most important plot point that holds these two books together is when the people tell Moses, after having received the Ten Commandments, as God has spoken them in the hearing of the entire nation, hey, Moses, from now on, you talk to this God for us because he scares us to death. You just report back to us what he says. That, that was a moment that was beautifully portrayed in a mostly forgotten television miniseries from the mid-90s, starring Ben Kingsley as Moses. Kingsley's Moses is standing before the people, smiling and blissful as the wind howls and the trumpet of God uh, sounds in a deafening way. And he turns around in the midst of all of this, expecting to see the people of Israel as enraptured as he is, only to see them screaming and cowering behind rocks and just running away. Almost everything from that moment on in Exodus and Leviticus, in my opinion, is about God restoring that personal connection with the nation through the instructions of Exodus, which detail how the tabernacle was to be built so that God could make his home in the midst of the people, to the Leviticus rituals and sacrifices that provide instruction on how to maintain a relationship with God that he seeks to have with his people. Collectively, I think the rest of Exodus and all of Leviticus show us that God doesn't want his people just simply to know about him, to know that he exists. God wants his people to know him intimately. So Leviticus ends by emphatically underscoring this and saying that the key to life is a vibrant and intimate relationship with God. And maintaining this relationship is the difference between a blessed life, a life that God intends for us to have, and a cursed life. Find Leviticus 26 in your copy of God's words. We, we won't read all of Leviticus 26 today, but I do want to read two representative portions so that we can catch the gist of what it is saying. Hope you're finding that. If you would, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 3 of Leviticus 26. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then... I will give you your rains in their seasons 
and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing, basically saying the crops will always keep coming in. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land. And you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept. You shall clear out the old to make way for the new. In other words, saying you'll always have food. It'll just be overflowing. And then this, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Simply put, God is saying that if you continue to obey the laws that I have put before you and to observe the rituals that I have outlined for you, then you will experience abundant harvest and peace in the land. But most importantly, you will experience my abiding presence among you. You won't just know about me. You will know me intimately. But the flip side of all of that is what follows beginning in verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes, make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And in short, God is saying you'll be cursed in all of the ways that you would have otherwise been blessed. He's saying that rather than live among you in peace, I will work against you in vengeance. Such is the fate of people who were made to know God, but instead chose to disregard Him and ignore Him. As hard as it may be to hear, the point is hard to miss. Life apart from God is less than what God has made possible for us to experience. It's a cursed life rather than a blessed life. That's Leviticus 26. And it's essentially the conclusion of the book. That makes Leviticus 27 something like an appendix. In fact, it's so separate from the narrative flow of the rest of the book that even some of the very best commentaries, which are books about Bible books, do little more than to simply say, I kid you not, and oh, by the way, Leviticus has another chapter, and then they just move right on. And in part, the reason for this is that we know so little about the custom that informs it. So I'll show you what I mean by reading eight verses that are going to confuse everybody in the room. Okay, so you're not alone. That's exciting. 
to hear me introduce it that way, right? Let's look at the first eight verses of Leviticus 27. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The man, if, if the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to 5 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 5 shekels of silver and for a female, the valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. And if a person is 60 years old and over, the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels and the, uh, for a female 10 shekels. And if if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to whatever the vower can afford. And you've just said, that's my life passage. I, I build my entire life around what you've just read. What a special day of worship this is. I, I get, I get that it's confusing. And if, just so you'll know, the, the rest of the chapter goes on to provide the same kind of information for various animals and for lands and for houses for which we are all free to just say, what? So let's see if we can put some handles on it. The vow that is being talked about here is called a special vow, meaning that it is a personal commitment to the Lord that goes above and beyond the kind of commitment that is called for in Leviticus 26. Language that we might use today to describe this would be free will offering. When we make a free will offering to the Lord, we aren't making it because we have to. We are offering it simply because we want to, out of gratitude to the Lord. The difference is that today when we do those kinds of things, we, we offer cash or stocks or bonds to fulfill that vow for the most part. But in a cashless society, as the wandering Israelites effectively were at this point, the gifts made were possessions and people. Now, before you freak out, let's take a moment to understand what this actually looks like by using God's Word to open the door for us. The, the book of 1 Samuel begins with an overview of the plight of a childless woman named Hannah who became so desperate for a child that she made a, a free will vow, a vow that if God gave her a son, she would give him over to the Lord's service in the tabernacle for the rest of that child's life. And the Lord blesses her with a child and when he was weaned, she took him to the tabernacle to serve in the tabernacle and live with the priests the rest of his life. That child's name was Samuel. And that vow is the kind of thing that we are looking at in Leviticus 27. As a special offering to the Lord, people might offer their livestock or land or home or themselves or, yes, their children to the Lord's service in the tabernacle. And what Leviticus 27 does then is show what that offering was worth. Because of their relative strength, 
men were worth more than women in assisting with the tabernacle duties, and women were worth more than children, and the young person was worth more than the older person. But why the valuation in the first place? Why put a monetary value on these free will offerings? Here it is. Because sometimes people can't do what they committed to do. My mom had a, a difficult labor with me, which proves from the get-go I was a bit of a handful. It was dicey enough that my dad prayed a prayer. He said, Lord, let this child be born healthy, and he's yours. Lots of fathers have said those kinds of prayers. But he says that when he saw me for the first time, he believed the Lord told him at that moment that I was going to be a pastor. Now, to their credit, neither mom nor dad ever told me that story until the night I called from church camp in southern Oklahoma to tell them that I'd been called to preach because they didn't want to influence me at all. Now, let's treat that prayer of my father for me like an Old Testament vow like what we're seeing in Leviticus 27. And let's say that my dad made the commitment at that moment that when I was old enough, he was going to give me to the church to serve. They'd have probably given me back, but, but let's just say he had made that kind of commitment. And let's just say that my dad were a farmer. I mean, not a hobby farmer like what we were, but I mean, that was how he was making his living. And let's just say that as he got older, and couldn't do it anymore, he, he realized he, he needed my services. What could he do? What could he do? Well, by the valuation in Leviticus 27, I'm currently worth about 50 bucks. I'm almost not to be worth 50 bucks. I mean, I'm on the downward, I'm depreciating uh, is what's going on. If dad had vowed to give me to the Lord and later circumstances realized, made him realize that he would have to change his mind, that valuation would be the price that he would have to pay to fulfill his vow and to take me home. Now, that is so odd to modern folks like us, I know. But it was something at the time that was so common and understood that there was no need to explain the details behind Leviticus 27. That's part of the reason it's hard for us to be able to get really definitively to the heart of what Leviticus 27 is talking about. And so Leviticus closes with instructions regarding blessings and curses and vows. But there is a thread that ties it together, something that is easily overlooked. And that thread is grace, seen explicitly in Leviticus 26 and by clear implication in Leviticus 27. Remember, Leviticus 26 outlines the blessings for following the God who wants to be known and the curses for rejecting him. And the bleakness of those curses just stack and stack and stack on one another until they become downright depressing, until God says that he will cast the unrepentant and wayward Jews out of the land that he has given them should they continue to rebel against them. And God says that if that happens, he'll just let the people die there, which they eventually did 
at the hands of the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. But after all of that, God says this in Leviticus 26, 44. Yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant of their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. He was going to preserve a remnant. We see this all the way through the Old Testament. And the idea picked up on in the New. He's going to preserve a remnant of God's people to show his faithfulness to them and he would return them for all of their treachery and rebellion against God he would not completely destroy them he would remain faithful to them even though at times it seemed they were utterly incapable of being faithful to him and he did all of that he did preserve the remnant and he brought them back in the 5th century BC after the nation had been exiled there for 70 years i'd call that grace but where does the thread of grace exist in Leviticus 27? I would argue simply in its reason for existing. A commitment made to the Lord, even if it was made under one's own, own volition, was required to be fulfilled. The Jews couldn't go back on their commitment to the Lord, but if keeping the commitment became an overwhelming burden or impossible by life circumstances to fulfill, God provides a system of valuation that allows them to fulfill their commitment, costly to be sure, but still possible to fulfill. I'd call that grace. So this book of blood and guts and fire, as one author has described it, is a book of grace. A grace that overwhelms our bent toward rebellion. A grace that makes it possible to keep a vow to God we might not otherwise be able to keep. In other words, it shows us a grace that is greater than all our sin. In this often ignored book, in a place then where we would least expect to find him, we see Jesus. Now, we don't see his name, obviously, or see him speaking or acting, but the writers of the New Testament tell us he's there. The writings of a man named Paul show us over and over and over again that the regulations and the rituals of Leviticus were fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And specifically, as it relates to our final passage today, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of what we have learned about in two very clear ways. First, Jesus took our curse to give us his blessing. I want you to go with me to Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screens, but I'd like for you to go there if you brought your Bible with you. And I want you to follow along as I begin to read and talk about some verses from Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Verse 10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. When Paul, who wrote Galatians, says, For it is written here, he's referring to Deuteronomy 27, which is very much like Leviticus 26. In Deuteronomy 27, Moses calls the people together for a solemn ceremony as they commit themselves to, to follow God and obey His commands as they are headed into the promised land. And as they begin this commitment, they begin it by pronouncing a series of curses on themselves if they fail to keep the law. A series of curses which concludes with them saying, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That's the part that Paul quotes. So what Paul is doing in verse 10 is making the point that everyone who relies on their ability to keep the law is cursed by it because it is ultimately beyond the ability of anyone to keep the law perfectly. We are not without sin. For Paul, this truth about human nature, that we are just sinners by nature and by choice, is obvious, and he says as much in the next verse. Look at verse 11. Now, it is evident... Everyone knows this, he's saying, that no one is justified before God uh, by the law. Why? Because we're sinners. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So what does that mean? What is, what is Paul getting at here? He's saying that the righteous, those who are truly right with God, are right with God, not on the basis of their ability to keep the law, but on the basis of their faith in God. The person who's going to be righteous is righteous by faith in order for them to be perfectly absolved by the 242 positive commands and the 365 prohibitions that the Jewish rabbi says were outlined in the Old Testament law. But now going back to verse 10, there's this problem we must address. We can say by faith God's going to make me right in all of these ways that I'm wrong, but, but we, have to, we have to get to the heart of the curse. I mean, the holy God demands that the price be paid, that the curse be enacted because of the sin that has been committed. So before we can live by faith and be absolved of all this wrong... The curse must be dealt with. And Paul explains how that happens in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul is saying that Christ sets us free from the curse of the law by paying the price for our disobedience to it. He did this by taking the curse on himself. And so Paul quotes another verse from Deuteronomy to demonstrate just how literally this curse was transferred to Christ. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, he says. After a person was executed in Jewish life, their body would be impaled on a stake or hung from a tree as a public demonstration that this person is evidence of what happens when you violate the law of God. This person was cursed. So Paul is saying that the price that Jesus paid to release us from the curse was to take the curse on himself. In this way, the tension 
of the Old Testament is resolved. God's holiness requires our curse for violating the law. When Christ experiences that curse himself, our freedom from that curse is secured. And the result is what? Blessing. Look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul makes the point over and over and over again in his writings that everyone is under the law, Jew or not, and we are all under the curse for violating that law, Jew or not. But in a very real way, Christ took the curse for our disobedience and gave us the blessing of his righteousness in exchange. Jesus becomes our curse to give us his blessing. And then we must see in closing that Jesus kept our vow to give us his faithfulness. And here's where we see that in the New Testament. Find Romans chapter 8 in your copy of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, a verse that is going to be very familiar for a great many of us. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The idea of there being no condemnation in Christ simply means this. Those who have committed themselves to follow Jesus have been delivered from sin's penalty, which is spiritual death, separation from God. Paul, in the book of Colossians, puts it another way. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the curse of sin has been lifted, which is what we just saw in Galatians. That's what Romans 8.1 is about. Paul talked at length in Romans 1 through 3 how all of mankind are the object of God's wrath because of sin. But followers of Jesus have had this wrath of God uh, against them extinguished in Christ. We'll never have to worry about the threat of condemnation again because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for us. That's an idea that he develops further beginning in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, Paul will explain that statement from back to front. In verse 3, he explains how Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus met the demands of God's law both by living it perfectly and paying the penalty for mankind's sin. That's how we are set free from the law of sin and death. And now he explained what he meant by saying when he, uh, what he meant when he was saying that the law of the spirit of life has set us free. Look at the last part of verse 4. Us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's saying that the power of sin broken in our lives has freed us up to be inhabited by the Spirit of God who then is able to live out 
in our lives and produce the faithfulness in our lives that would otherwise not have been possible. Now, let me do my very best here to try to simply tie this together. Remember earlier, we talked about Leviticus 27 being a system of valuation where if I got to the point that I could not keep my vow, there was a price that could be paid. Are you tracking with me? That would allow me to be able to keep a vow I wouldn't otherwise be able to keep. Remember how I said that in, in Hannah's life, it was her son? What we're being told by Paul here is that we have not been able to keep our vow. But God has made a way for us to keep that vow. It's costly. But rather than demand my son or your daughter, he gave his own. He gave his own son. And in return, we get that son's faithfulness as our own. We were cursed. Christ became the curse. We were faithless. God gave us his faithfulness. In short, just as God's faithfulness to Israel overwhelmed their unfaithfulness to him, God's faithfulness to us in Christ triumphs over our unfaithfulness to him. So in closing, let's sit with that truth for just a bit. What does it practically mean? That God's grace in Christ is greater than all our sin. First, it obliterates any notion. Some of you might have that your past is too great and your sin is too shameful for God to save you. God's grace in Christ overwhelms your unworthiness. It's overwhelmed mine it's overwhelmed anybody's unworthiness. And his grace can save us. Second, this releases you from the idea that many Christians have that your sin since professing Christ nullifies your salvation. In other words, God was able to save me from the sin to that point. But since then, my sin has has nullified, has taken away my salvation. It's not forgivable. What we see is that God's grace in Christ overwhelms in the life of his children moments and even seasons of faithlessness. Finally, it rebukes any thought that obedience is optional. When one truly grasps the concept of grace, they aren't driven to see what lines they can cross. Frankly, when I run into people who are basically projecting by their lives that they are so in the grace of God that they can do and live any way they want to live, I really question whether they've experienced the grace of Jesus because I know that in my life, the grace of Jesus pulls me back from the lines I want to cross and I want to cross a lot of them. That doesn't surprise anybody here. I want to cross a lot of them. But it jerks me back 
and lets me know such a great price has been paid to set me free from the curse. And such a great gift of Christ's faithfulness counted towards me has been given to me. Why would I live so ungratefully to see what lines I could cross? So what more can we say that the hymn doesn't already proclaim? Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Join me in prayer.